Hi, and welcome to this episode of I've Got This Kid. I'm your host, Sharina Williams, licensed speech and language pathologist, homeschooling mom of two, excited podcast host, and I am here with the wonderful Debbie Reber of Tilt Parenting Podcast. She's going to be talking with us today on My Child Is Not Broken. I'm going to turn it over to Debbie. You guys are in for a treat. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I got into doing this work, honestly, I will say, before I was doing any of this work and working with parents, I used to write empowering books for teenage girls because I considered myself to be a recovering teenager, and I think I was still trying to (laughs) to grapple with that. And I'm someone who has always created what I've needed. And so I was so passionate about that work. And when I was 35, I gave birth to a boy, which was, first of all, surprising because of all the girl work. I was 100% certain I was going to have a a girl as a daughter. And then I had a son, (laughs) which was fine. I wrapped my head around that. But then as, you know, the years went on and he, he was a colicky baby and he was one of those super precocious kids and never would sit still. And he, he just was... He was more than I was anticipating. Certainly, you know, I thought I was going to rock it as a parent. I was going to be like the best mom because I read all the books and I thought I knew what I was doing. And I had theory. Yes, a lot of theory, no practice. And so, you know, in having this son who kind of started to uh, challenge my ideas of who I would be as a parent and what our life would look like and our family life and how it would go. It was, it got increasingly challenging as, as the years went on. And as we entered into preschool and we started discovering, you know, just more information about the way that he's wired and realizing, oh, he's, he's not neurotypical. Like there are some other things going on with him. And it, it kind of felt like with every passing year, there was that we were getting more information that, okay, this is not the plan you had and you need to pivot or this is not going to be good for, for anybody. So anyway, just to fast forward and I'll go back and share any of my story that you want, but I ultimately decided, you know, we homeschooled my child for a number of years and I kind of leaned in more to who he was. And I, and I really recognized once I kind of got through the rough years I recognized how little support there was for parents like me who have these kids who they have more invisible differences. So it's not so obvious that there's something going on with them, or it's not really easy to say, Oh, your child has down syndrome or your child has this. Right. And so we feel kind of stuck. And I just felt so passionate again about creating what I wish I had had when, when my guy was little And so I kind of got really passionate and made this huge pivot in my professional life to start working with parents and supporting parents who are raising kids like mine. Very nice. So I I always wonder, because in my mind, I have a clinical mind Mm -hmm. and my clinical mind always takes me to like, we have these pictures, right? And these scenarios in our mind and when our little ones, when our sugars are all little and cute and still smell like cookies, they have all these wellness appointments mm-hmm. and these visits to the doctors. What was your doctor at the time saying? It's such a good question. And as soon as you started talking about smelling like cookies, I was remembering how much I used to love to smell his little feet. Like there's nothing like 
good. They're so good. Yes. Oh my God, they're so cute. <laughs> so I would say our wellness visits were pretty, I mean, I didn't know any different. He was my first and only child, but there were no red flags. Right. He was, he was verbal really early and he was kind of, he would delight, in fact, our pediatrician because he he would be talking in complete sentences about something really interesting that you didn't normally hear from a little guy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we would talk about the, the tantrums, which seemed a lot bigger than our friend's kids' tantrums were. Right. And we would talk about that. And, you know, we were just, we were recommended books like Raising Your Spirited Child or, you know, <laughs> Setting Limits for Your Strong-Willed Child and all of these things. But it, the feedback I got from the pediatrician was there's nothing that makes me concerned that this is, you know, this all seems normal within the range of normal right. uh, development. development. So there were no, yeah. And I was like, well, you're not living in my house. Like you don't know what we're going through. Yeah. yeah. And you bring up such an important point and I always try to overemphasize to the listeners to our world changers out there, right? If it doesn't look right, feel right, smell right, mm-hmm. you got to get a second opinion. Yeah. Um, I, I tell, I've even told clients where the physician was just adamant about not hearing the concerns. I'm like, well, then let's make them a casual acquaintance. And when we see them walking by, we say hello and let's find somebody who meets our needs. And this is mm-hmm. the reason why, because Debbie, you're an amazing woman and you know how to tool yourself up. And a lot of our world changers out there don't, don't even know where to start. And so many things and feelings go into, and emotions go into, well, this is going on, it's very real to me, but I don't know how to X. I don't Mm -hmm. know how to fix. I don't know how to execute. Sometimes there's not even an antecedent as to like what's causing this behavior to come. Mm -hmm. And it puts our, our world changers in a position to where isolation occurs because nobody's listening. How did you deal? Not very well. I mean, and, and I, just to even speak to that, there was also a piece of me that was so relieved, right? To hear from the pediatrician, from this <laughs> right. trusted person, everything looks fine. I'd be like, okay, cool. All right. If he says that it's got to be true. So mm-hmm. that was so tricky was as a parent, you want to hear that everything's fine and absolutely want to hear that. Right. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, things aren't really fine at home. And so then you, then, then you start thinking, am I making this up? Is is this because I'm not equipped to handle this? Like, did I, you know, so you start like doubting everything and that, that coupled with just, you know, feeling isolated is a really lonely place to be because you start to when you start feeling like no one else understands what you're going through, you just kind of withdraw, you know, you don't want to engage. You don't want to be a part of kind of social situations where you're worried something's going to happen and you're might be judged by other people and, and it takes a toll on your relationship. And, you know, it, it, it it's a very lonely 
place and it, you just feel kind of lost. That's how I felt. Right. And, and you're not the only one who feels that way. And that's why we have this platform. Like this is the purpose of the podcast is so other world changers out there will know that A, you're not alone. B, this stuff is real. And even more importantly, you're not crazy because sometimes people are like, okay, I must be crazy then. Especially when you mm-hmm. have a trusted professional who's saying nothing's wrong, everything's fine. You leave and five minutes later, like, hey, you're like, oh my God, right. I, I, maybe I need to record it. Like, <laughs> like mm-hmm. But what caused you to pivot? What? I mean, it happened, it happened slowly, right? It wasn't one thing. I had a good friend. I think we all need that one person who feels safe enough to tell us what they're seeing. And so I had a friend who was an educator. She had taught in Montessori uh, early elementary for years, and she had a master's in uh, child development. So she was someone I really trusted. And she was the first one who kind of was like skirted around the issue. Like, I think there might be some sensory issues going on. And be like, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard of sensory. What's even, what, sensor who? Huh? Yeah, like no clue. And so that was kind of in the back of my mind. But she never pushed me to say, I think you should get an, an assessment. So I didn't. I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And then when we were, I think when my son was four and we were in a preschool, and it was a lovely preschool and they really were working with him, but it, he, you know, that the structure of that, it was just a recipe for disaster. The, the, the transitions and the unpredictability of so many different kids and the sensory stuff, the tactile things yeah. that preschoolers get into. So yeah. there were lots of notes. There were lots of phone calls, early pickups and, and it was come for him, for my son, it was really exhibiting as just anger, like right. a lot of anger. And that was the first point I said, okay, we need something. So we, we, we started working with a, a family therapist on anger management, which I didn't know you could do anger management with four-year-olds, but apparently you can. Okay. You can. I did uh, not know that either. You learn something new every day. <laughs> And I don't know that it was successful, honestly, but we just needed something, you know, and it wasn't until the following year, I I had an extensive wait, you know, six months on a wait list until I got into an occupational therapy office. I was living in Seattle at the time and they were the first people who were like, we got this kid. Like, This is, we, we work with kids like this all the time. And, and I started to understand more, even what sensory processing disorder was and what that looks like and how, what emotional regulation was like, this was when my real education began. Yeah. And God bless those people mm-hmm. for giving you the tools that you needed. I love the heart of a teacher, like not mm-hmm. just like a professional, but a professional that has the heart of a teacher because it puts for one, it puts the parent in a place to where they can finally breathe and understand what's going on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then it then gives them the tools that they need yeah. to help support and move through these sticky moments. I like mm-hmm. to call them sticky moments. Mm-hmm. And, and it creates that family bonding again, right? Yeah. Because a big part of that, and I think that this is so overlooked industry-wide, like we just don't talk about it, that when these things 
take place, family gets impacted. Mm-hmm. Bonding gets impacted because now I'm on eggshells because I don't know when you're going to explode on me. Yep. And, you know, little sugar still picking up on mommy's emotions. And so maybe mommy isn't quite, you know, gelling with me or in the back of my mind, I see them looking at me. Am I a bad kid? Right. Yep. And it's not necessarily true. Like neither of those things are true. Like there's genuine love there mm-hmm. and there's genuine desire to want to connect, but it's that missing link on how. Yes. How do I get to that place with you? Mm-hmm. And then it can start impacting bigger relationships. Like you said, now we're socially isolating because mm-hmm. I don't want to go out in public and be that parent that's getting the Right. Look, you know, yeah. And they're like, oh, you're this parent who's careless with your kid and you probably either need to spank them, you know, because that's the first thing. A lot of people Mm -hmm. are like, spank them. Mm -hmm. Spanking's illegal. I tried that, you know, like all of those things. It doesn't work. And and these are real things or Mm -hmm. um, they let the child get away with everything or the child is entitled or the child is this not realizing that something real is going on out of the parents control and the little sugars control. Mm-hmm. And again, it's the lack of having the, that tool and that education in order to like push um, and make sure that everybody's getting what they need. Mm-hmm. So once you started this OT process, how mm-hmm. did things start looking? Well, I just have to say, this is so fun to even think about. Like that was a long time ago. My son is 16 now. Yeah. And I remember Chris Johnson was, was my son's OT. I still like, I'm, she's has a special place in my heart because I never felt more seen than when I was with her. She, she loves, loved and loves my son. And so she really saw him. I didn't realize when we started going, how comforting it would be for me, like just to be able to talk through first of all, to observe what she was doing, which was eye-opening to me to, oh, this is how I can talk and this is what happens. And, you know, so I really learned so much just from watching her interact, but she also would just check on in on me personally. And I could cry in front of her. Like I could just have the worst day ever. And it was such a safe place. So, uh, I just that, I don't think we would have survived those years without that kind of support, but we, and we continued with that OT for, I think, actually until we moved um, out of Seattle. So it was four years and it, it was fascinating to me. I mean, I learned a lot of tools. I learned communication tools. I started to really understand, you know, what proprioception was and, you know, all of these, these things and, and what it means to emotionally like organize, to organize your brain through certain movements and things yes. like that. So I just kind of soaked it all up and, uh, and kind of, that was really a launching pad. And, and then over the years, like we discovered more information and we, we supplemented the OT with other types of support. Nice. Very nice. And so I, I think about your process and I think about your journey and I think that you hit on something that is so special, and that's the relationship between therapist, mm-hmm. 
and family. Mm-hmm. I try to even stay away from the word client or patient because those relationships are so interpersonal. Yeah. So interpersonal. And the reason why they're so interpersonal is because it gives the parents that space that they need mm-hmm. yep. to be vulnerable, um, to be open, to talk about what's happening. And I think that, you know, we need to industry wide be more mindful of of how impactful and in how important those relationships are with these parents because you know our time with them we have one hour right mm-hmm. at best sometimes 30 or 45 minutes once a week mm-hmm. unless you're getting something more intensive that's the norm and so it's so important that during these times and during these spaces not only are we seeing the need of the the little sugar, but also the need of the one who's providing the most care, love and support mm-hmm. and making mm-hmm. sure that things are, are happening and that they're being heard, um, the parent. And so as you talk about your relationship with the therapist, with Chris, um, it makes me and reminds me how valuable those relationships are. and how important it is if you have not already um not you particular but for the listeners to make sure that you have that that same kind of relationship with your provider um and the reason why is because again while your child may have a need you also have one as well and because they have so much insight and can see things from outside in, it is so beneficial to have like that next set of eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, it also helps with the relationship, the parent relationship. And the reason why it helps with the parent relationship too is because you have to consider two different families, two different, you know, two different families coming together to form a union to have their own family. So different backgrounds, different ideas, different belief systems, different values. And within that, you are trying to figure out like, what what do we value, our own value? Mm -hmm. What do we as a family, you know, want to do? What do we want to impart? But it also means that we have these little people that we're looking at from two different lenses. Mm -hmm. And so the, the provider, can also act as a buffer for that. Yeah, um, absolutely. Because it's different questions, right? Dad mm-hmm. is gonna have much different questions than mom is gonna have. Like it's it's naturally that way. Um, parenting partners think differently because you're two different people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're two different people. And it takes the pressure off of the one parent to have to explain. Because remember like, the parents aren't the provider, so they don't have all the knowledge. And when they're going into these sessions, they're getting their needs met. But that doesn't mean that they can come home and return and meet the other person's needs. Right. Yeah. Yes. And it's also a long process, right? It's not kind of thing where 
couple sessions and you're like, okay, I've got it. I'll take it from here. Like it is just, it unfolds over a long period of time. Usually, It does. does. I agree. I agree. I agree completely. So like with all of the services that you guys had, what did you learn the most during that process? Like, I know you learned a lot of content information, but Mm -hmm. I guess what was the most valuable thing in that time during that time? I think I just learned how, what my personal triggers were, you know, the kinds of things that, that really got to me where I didn't have the patience where I would go from, I'd be all calm and cool and I've got this. And then I could just go right (laughs) low. And that was I had to really learn and and I learned, you know, I of course learned how to, what language to use and how to not take those things personally that were happening with my son. But, but I got a a lot of opportunity to practice that, but I, but that really helped me start to recognize, you know, that I was making certain behaviors mean all kinds of things about me and what our life was going to look like and what my child's future looked like. And so I was kind of, I was like uh, spiraling out of control emotionally. And I, and during that time, I, I didn't learn how to not do that anymore, but I learned to recognize that that was what was happening. And that helped me not be so enmeshed with what was happening. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah not get sucked into the drama as quickly and be able to, to better be that observer of what was happening. Mm-hmm. And so that I could better show up So that was, yeah, again, where, again, I learned those things. And then I've been spending all the years since really honing those skills. Right. And and that practice is so key because we as, I mean, just because we're parents and just because we're striving to be world changers doesn't make us perfect. Mm -hmm. And we have our own personalities and, and it's easy to, um, it's easy to hold the behavior as a personal attack or you're doing this on purpose or you're doing this for this or you're doing this for that. Right. And, and that's absolutely not true. And so you've, I mean, just saying that it takes time because Mm -hmm. sometimes I think that we can easily get so discouraged when something doesn't work the first time, the second Mm -hmm. time. Yeah, the 20th time. Yeah. The 50th time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I could I could see that. And so what made you then, once you got to that place to where you're like, okay, I'm tooled up, at least on the path, mm-hmm. what made you make that shift professionally from being an amazing author of teen books to become an amazing author and podcaster? Well, I, first of all, thank you for first using the word amazing with my book and podcast. <laughs> right. um, <laughs> <Own it. laughs> so 
So I have another friend. I have really great friends. I just have to say, because when I realize I'm bringing them up in my stories, but another friend who was, she's kind of my soul sister where I feel like we're on these very similar trajectories in terms of our, just like our spiritual development. And she always would say to me, Debbie, I think, because I'd be frustrated, right? Right. I've got this kid requiring all this time and energy and the appointments and the school pickups. And I really, I have this whole life of mine that I love and this career that I have spent so much time building. And I felt frustrated by that disconnect. And she would always say, Debbie, I think that, you know, parenting your son is a much more, a much bigger part of your your life's work than you realize. And I'd be like, okay, whatever. You know, like I was like, <laughs> I don't want to hear that. <laughs> no, I just want, I want my life back was what I, you know, felt really strongly at the time. And I'm going to, I'm going to stop you there. Yeah, sure. And, and the reason why is because I want to highlight something. Parenting in and of itself is a process, right? And we, we have these perceptions in our mind of what it is that we think it's going to be, who we are going to be, and how we're going to hold on to all of these things. Mm-hmm. And at some point, we can lament what we think we're missing out on, not knowing that something is like, if we just lean into what's right. in front of us, lean into what's what's being placed there. And so I want to overemphasize, and this is also coming from someone who had to make drastic changes to become homeschooling and mm-hmm. fitting all these other different spaces. So I understand you completely. But mm-hmm. I just want to emphasize out there for our listeners that, you know, what life was, you know, and what we thought it was going to be versus what it becomes, it doesn't always necessarily mean it's a bad thing. But it also, like Debbie is saying, takes powerful community around us to help pull it out of us. Mm-hmm. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Because I can't Yeah, remember. no, you're so right. Because we want to hold on, right? Yes. We really want to hold on to what we know, which feels safe. And so in my particular circumstance, we, things were not working. Like we had been through three schools different for kindergarten, first and second grade. Mm -hmm. My family didn't live on the West coast. And we were, we were just like, what are we doing? This is not working. (laughs) And things were not getting better. And, you know, despite four different therapies a week, like it was just not, nothing was going anywhere. My husband got an opportunity with his job for us to move to the Netherlands. And so we just kind of decided, all right, let's just try it. Like, and, why, what do we have to lose is what we felt. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we made that move. And in, as part of that move, we realized that I would be homeschooling because we, if we couldn't find a fit in Seattle, we probably weren't going to find the right school in Amsterdam. So <laughs> no. So I, I then started homeschooling this kid. He was nine. He had just turned nine and it was pretty rough at first, but Over, yeah, it it was rough, but over the, you know, that first year, I, I don't know, it it wasn't any one moment, but I kind of had to really confront my ideas about control and really, you know, and, and what I was holding on to. And I decided, I just made a conscious choice. I am like not showing up for this kid. I am still trying to to get back on this other path I want to be on. I need to stop doing that. And I 
I just made a shift. It was right around January, like maybe six months into the homeschool year. And I just started showing up like to our day together without an agenda, without thinking I needed to hurry up and get this done so I could get back to my work. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of leaned in right. to who he was. And it wasn't like a magic bullet or anything, but things started to change that he started to become more regulated. Mm-hmm. He, and he had some, I'm sure some trauma related to his school experience. So he was kind of uh, untangling that. And we just kind of kept leaning in and I started collaborating with him more instead of, yeah. you know, dictating. Yeah. <laughs> and, and things just started getting better. And I was like, okay, I'm really onto something now. And maybe like a year later, I had just finished writing a book for teenagers. And I kind of knew when I signed that contract that that was my last book in that space. And so I guess I always knew I would be writing about this, about parenting atypical kids. I certainly knew I wanted to create something to save parents like me, the pain of feeling like there's, they don't belong anywhere. And so I just, I don't know, I kind of made the space in my life to start exploring what would I create if I could to, to help parents. And I spent about a year just even talking to parents and kind of trying to understand where are they suffering and struggling the most right? and what do they need? What do they want? And how can we actually have a bigger conversation about neurodiversity as opposed to, you know, focusing just on fixing these kids how can we instead get society to expand their view of what normal is and so that's kind of where I my my interest went and I just went I went all in yeah absolutely and I think that my goodness so many emotions in there and so many thoughts in my head and the first thing that continues to like just be on the forefront of my mind is when you talk about that um, a few few things but one relinquishing control mm-hmm. um, because it's so hard because we feel like as parents we should have control over the situation all the time I learned I think I learned as a clinician before I learned as a parent Isn't that crazy? But I was a parent before I was officially a clinician that the most success that I have clinically and I have as a parent is when control is relinquished. And the reason why, and and I'm super controlling, like I just, I want things to go a certain way and Mm -hmm. and have it in my mind that things should go a certain way Um, and, and sometimes get stuck in that. But once... I learned how to like relinquish that if this outcome doesn't happen that I had in my mind that I just saw I don't know something in therapy change and then I tried it on the kids my <laughs> daughter at the time <laughs> it was only her at the time and I tried it on her and I realized just like you said the relationship changed mm-hmm. it just it completely changed because there's like a vulnerability in there and it's a different level of intimacy with your child and a different level of connectedness because they feel like they're heard. Yes. Um, and 
I know exactly like the feeling when you were talking about that, I was like, I know that feeling. And so powerful. It's such a beautiful feeling Mm -hmm. because then you kind of, you kind of get to see them open up Mm -hmm. and you get to see them shine in ways to where they don't necessarily get to shine. Homeschooling did that times a thousand. And when you talk about the, Ooh, the first months. Yeah. Especially if you're someone who likes control, right? You have, I'm sure you had a plan for how it was all going to look. (laughs) Right. Do the schedule. Yes. Are you on task? Yes. So so I even had to learn within that. And and I know, oh my goodness, it's so funny. Um, I even had to learn how to like manage that and, and it's not perfect, but I have learned how to manage that as well because we want, I think it goes back to like, we want what's best. It's just figuring out the best route to get there. Yes. Yeah. And during your time in the Netherlands, during that homeschooling process, once you wrote that final book, what was like your, I guess, aha that not only is homeschooling working but leaning into life as i'm going to devote my my time to just providing support and advocacy yeah i mean i think he the change when i really did start to show up for him and lean into him and just be willing to be present with him right for whatever and seeing how our relationship changed, it, the, the way that he changed was so dramatic because he, he started being more regulated. The tantrum started to, to simmer down. He could, he could recover from upset more quickly. He started being more open to like going out for walks with me. Like I, this kid who used to hate hiking now, he goes, he's 16, he walks with me every single day. We go on a long walk. I mean, we live in a city now, so it's not as beautiful as going through a nice park or something, but still like we've, he just started, he met me halfway, right? And that was so profound to me. I, I wanted everybody to know. I just wanted everyone to know that this is really hard work, right? but it's so worth it. It is so worth it. It's scary because you're throwing out the rule book often. Yes. <laughs> you're forging your own path. You're parenting in a way that might feel uncomfortable because it is, you know, it, it is a much more respectful relationship you're being vulnerable in front of your kids which was not modeled for me you know like I that was not how I was parented yeah and so it feels so uncomfortable and there's a lot of resistance I I think and so I just felt so strongly that I wanted to to help parents like discover that same magic right because right anything's possible at that point then you know when you start kind of peeling off the the, the layers of expectations and, and these ideas that we had about what this should look like and we right. start opening up to what it could look like, that shift is, is pretty profound. The piece of like you wanting to like, once you really saw your mm-hmm. son and your son really saw you, now you're like, oh my gosh, my sugar's not broken. Mm-hmm. And if I can find these ways and navigate in these ways 
I'm thinking about the the waiting room, right? We're we're I understand the world right now is shut down, so we're not in waiting rooms as mm-hmm. often as we were prior to. But the the heart of your heart of wanting to go back and meet these parents where you're seeing the same stuff that's happening to you at home in these waiting rooms. That's why I bring mm-hmm. up the waiting room. Mm-hmm. The heart of you wanting to show them that this stuff works is just is just awe-inspiring to me because we live in in a society to where like these taboo subjects nobody really wants to touch it or talk about it we just want to fix it and when we start having that mindset of fix 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 then it almost means that something's broken yeah right you only fix something if it's broken if Mm -hmm. if it's not broken you're not going to try to fix it it's you know right um and so i think that is the deeper message here is that our sugars aren't broken your sugar wasn't broken and there was nothing that needed to be fixed it's more so something needed to change Mm -hmm. an interaction and thought process and his experience when coming into contact with others, how he interpreted those, what they meant and what they mean. And I hear you talking a little bit about, and you brought it up a few times, his school mm-hmm. and the experiences in the school. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so his, he, we kept him in preschool for another year they had the school he was in had a fives class and it was for those kids who need a little extra time with their maturity okay yeah right so he did that because he was on the cusp he was like an august birthday yeah so that was really good but we were really advised from the teachers that this is a kid who's going to need a private school small school i was a public school kid so it was my husband so i had never considered private school um, but this was no, he, this is going to public school would be a disaster. That's the message that we got from our trusted advisors. So we applied to a bunch of schools and we got into one. So that's the one he went to. And it was a school for, it was like on the bottom of my list of places I would have chosen, but it, and it was a school for highly gifted kids, which my son ha- is like a ridiculous, which is fascinating and challenging, but, um, so yeah, he's, he's a tricky customer as I like to say. So he started this school. He had a lovely kindergarten teacher who, and there were tons of problems, but she loved him. Like his teacher loved him. And so really they worked with us. And I even a few times let myself believe that this was going to work. Like, maybe this (laughs) is all going to be okay. You know, fine. Yeah. And uh, so we kind of got through that year. Wasn't easy, but we got through that year. Started first grade and maybe two months into the year, you know, I remember I had a meeting with the lower head of school and I, we were having trouble at home. And I said, I'm just really worried about this stuff. And she's like, Debbie, we've got this. This is kids like him. This is what we do. I'm like, all right. Okay. Two weeks later, they were like basically having an intervention with me where all the teachers were like, this is not working. And this probably isn't a good fit for your child. So I don't know. I don't know what happened in those two weeks. (laughs) Oh 
my gosh. It was, it was not a pleasant, it was a really hard time in, in, in our life, um, as a family, um, lots of tears. And I, like, I didn't have a place for him either. So I, I, we kept him in through the end of, through December. And I felt like I was like, I wrote about it in my book. I felt like I was feeding him to the sharks every day because he was getting sent to the principal's office and he was being shamed by his teacher and other kids in his class. And gosh, so we pulled him out. We found another really small school. They took him for the rest of that year. It was a social justice, uh, emotional, social, emotional, lovely conflict resolution. Like it was like the cutest little school. They loved him. And at the end of that year, they're like, we love him so much. And this is probably not the right place for him because he's taking up too much teacher time. And we also can't meet his intellectual needs. So they were like, because we would have kept him there. They're like, sorry. So then we're like, okay, let's try public school. So we, we did second grade in a public school. He had an IEP and he did Okay. I mean, he started a side business, like oh, selling, sweet. selling origami po- Pokemons. He used to snake read his Kindle cause he was bored. He's like, I already know all this stuff anyway. Right. And he really struggled with staying regulated with that many kids, right? right. 25 kids in the class and personalities and all much. of these things. It was too much. So that was it. And so actually it was at the end of that year that we knew we were moving and I, I, he was getting pulled out twice a week for therapy, you know, with a speech language pathologist in the school. Right. And I told her, I said, just so you know, we're not coming back. We're going to try homeschooling. And she's, she's like, I think you're making the right decision. She's like, we can't, we could never have met his needs here. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me that in the first place? Yeah. <laughs> why are you telling me this now? Thanks. So, yeah, so it was, we bounced around. Uh, I feel like we tried a bunch of different kinds of environments and it just, he was a kid who needed to be homeschooled. He really needed the time to dive deep into things, to pursue his interests, to, you know, if he was really not in a space to do this thing one day, to be able to be like, all right, we'll do it another day. Like he needed that kind of structure or lack of structure almost like for him to structured structure. Yeah. 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 And so it was the best possible fit for him for, for many years, actually. Nice. And so what made you guys make that shift from um, homeschooling back to regular school? Because he is yeah. in school now. He is. It's not really a regular school, but he's in school. So cool. Yeah, he's in school. (laughs) Well, he's actually next door because of remote learning, but that's a whole other. So we're right back where we started in some ways. Um, So our, I I guess it technically would have been seventh grade and we were still living abroad. And he was like, I was teaching like English and history. And then I brought in like an art teacher and a Dutch teacher my husband was doing math and then he was doing science over, um, over, you know, with a virtual class. So it was kind of a mishmash of things. And that it was like our life. Yeah. I mean, it was fine. Actually, he, he was, he learned tons of stuff, but I started to recognize that 
it, there were going to start to be limitations, both in living where we were living, giving him access to the kind of opportunities that he needed as he was getting older. Right. And I don't know, I just had this like gut feeling. I'm like, this is coming to an end. This yeah. it's been great, but he needs more. And we moved back halfway through 2018. We were continuing to homeschool, but I always would say to him, I'm like, Hey, we're back in the U S we can find a school for you here a lot more easily. Right. If you're ready, like if you want to, I'm fine to keep doing this. We right. could try a virtual online school hundred percent. But he's like, I think it might be, I think it might be a good idea actually. Aww. So I actually, <laughs> being who I am, I made like a PowerPoint presentation for him. <laughs> and I was like, I pitched him I'm like, okay, here are the options, you know, my God, like, parenting. Yeah, totally. Like I was like an ad exec, right? Pitching a campaign. And yeah, it's like we could do, you know, a hybrid of homeschooling and yeah. classes. Like I just presented all these ideas and and he ended up wanting to try. We're at a school now that is a one-to-one learning. And Aww. I know it's ridiculous, It's but it's amazing. And so he is now starting his second year at this school. Aww. And he's kicking butt and he, his teachers are amazing. And he's, he's so, he's not happy because of COVID-19. <laughs> he's now doing it from his bedroom. That's another show. That's another show. But, <laughs> but with the school in general, he was ready. And, uh, and it's exactly what he needs right now. So I'm, I'm so grateful. Like I can't, after so many years of feeling like I couldn't get him what he deserved and what he needed. Right. And it was such, I was always just scrambling to find things for him. I feel like, okay, I'm so grateful this exists and that he's getting the opportunity to do this right now. And it puts him in such a unique place. So you hear that world changers, not broken, just needed a new map. Mm -hmm. And it puts him in a place now to where he can not only get the stuff that he needs academically, but also honing in on those things that will start pushing him into adulthood yep. and realizing and understanding things about himself. Because I couldn't imagine for this little guy, if he would have been forced to go through the traditional route, if all of these things about himself would have been discovered. No. And, you know, these self-actualization moments and even having the environment that supports. And so it's it's crucial that the community that we allow our sugars to be in is a fit. Mm-hmm. And this is why I always overemphasize like having a fit environment for your sugar because every child is different. And I've even had families who've had three kids in three different schools because there were much different kids with mm-hmm. much different needs and needed totally different support and they were all thriving. Yeah. And we have to be mindful about what it is that we're doing and not just going along, you know, and just to kind of get along with what's considered to be normal. Mm-hmm. Normal is whatever is a fit for your sugar, not doing what everybody else does and the way that they do it. And so you have to like, there's no way you're going to be here without talking about differently wired. Like you have to talk about it. I, you have sure. to you have to. Yeah. 
I'm happy to. Um, go for it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, sure. So differently wired, I, again, I think I always knew I was go- going to write. I've been writing books for 20 years and I have, my agent has been my agent for 20 years. And so she's before, you know, my son was even conceived. Like, yeah. So she's watched my whole journey from afar. And she always would say, Debbie, you're going to write about this someday, but first you have to live through it. And so I kind of always knew. And when I was ready, I, I wanted it. I wanted to write like a big book. I wanted a book that would be both a manifesto, like a rally cry and a practical book for parents. And so it was interesting because publishers were like, this is kind of a weird book because it's these (laughs) two different pieces. I'm like, just trust me on this. And and luckily I, I found a publisher who was like, all right, we get it. We're behind you. But so the way that I wrote it is the first kind of third, the first chunk is it really is a manifesto. I, I wanted, I was hoping this book, and I still hope that it's a book that people will talk about over the water cooler, whatever, like yeah. that it will help people start to consider the ways in which the system, you know, our education system, the medical system, all of these systems, insurance, all of these things are not designed to support the one in five, at least families who are dealing with neurodivergence in their kids. And so I, I talk about why that the system isn't working, what the ramifications are for our kids, for our families and for society and what needs to change. So I wrote that hoping that people would be like, yeah, this is bull crap. I'm totally in. What do we need to do? So it was like that, that urgency piece. Right. Right. And then the, the remainder of the book, the rest of the book is where I kind of lay out for parents specifically, this is how the change happens. Like we have the most at stake. We, as the parents of these kids, we have the most at stake because it's our kids and we're in the best position to get this revolution going. And here's how we do it. And so I kind of broke down I call them tilts because of tilt parenting, but (laughs) here are kind of 18 tilts, 18 tweaks, reframes that we can make in our own lives and our thinking and the way that we parent that is going to not only help our children discover who they are and kind of live into their potential, but it's going to also help this bigger sea change come to fruition. So that was kind of my, like, I have a big goal. I don't know if I've, if, if it's doing that work, it's certainly resonating with parents and helping parents feel seen and helping parents feel like, Oh my gosh, you're finally speaking my experience. I'm not alone. And I'm, I totally am with you. And it's been really cool to see. It's been wonderful to see how it's been. Yeah. Received in the community. Because it's something that's missing and something that's needed and it's something that's real. And, you know, we're in an age now to where we need what works. Mm -hmm. And I talk about insurances. I'm just going to shake my head and yeah, that's another day. But um, Mm -hmm. the difficulty navigating insurance and how schools and insurance, they just kind of they play like it's like a game of ping pong I almost yep. like to think about to where they just pass the ball 
back mm-hmm. to each other, but nothing really happens. And so I think that your book needed to happen because so many people need to know it, not just from the professionals, but from the parent who's living this thing out, who's lived this out and knows and understands what it looks like, feels like, smells like to have to navigate through these systems that are not always supportive. And so for me, practice wise, like I had to just, for the most part, not even deal because it gets so frustrating when you hear professionals, businesses tell you, we're not going to provide these services because it wasn't congenital. Well, that's because science hasn't caught up to that. Like, you can't you can't deny services like that's almost unethical that should be against the law Mm -hmm. and so it it frustrates me as a provider who has the tool and can point people in the direction of the tools it's it almost reminds me of like dangling you know something in front of a cat and you're like you know you go higher up you go higher up you go higher up that's almost what these these systems feel like and Mm -hmm. it feels like once you get a little bit closer they just you know raise the stake a little bit higher and i i encourage you guys out there to go and pick up a copy of that book get yourself tooled up get empowered because debbie is completely right you're completely right the only way that anything is going to change within these systems is when we continue to challenge these systems and we continue to push or tilt these systems Mm -hmm. um, in different directions because at the end of the day, these are our sugars and we are empowered to change the trajectory of things for them and it's through our actions. But if we just kind of keep going along and not getting these needs met, there is a bigger global impact that I don't think that we consider enough. Debbie, what advice would you give for parents? Once again, where do I start? No. Um, <laughs> you know, the, what I always, there's two things that I always like to make sure parents take away when, when, when I talk to them. One is, you know, we've talked about, but just really, truly believing and knowing that your child is not broken. And there is no one way that this journey has to look and that we have more choice than we might imagine, even when it comes to advocating in our, you know, with our kids, teachers or whatever, like trust yourselves as, you know, we have so much intuition. We, no one knows our kids better than we do. And just that deep belief that our kids aren't broken, that, and that alone can change so much in the way that you respond to your child and in the way that your child feels about themselves because they are so these kids they are like so tuned into us if they feel like they're not living up to our expectations or that we're secretly really worried about them they're gonna feel oh crap there's something really wrong with me yes so we want to own that we want to just be like no my kid is exactly who they're meant to be they have such incredible strengths of course, they have lagging skills. We all do. I have plenty. I'm still working on list. But we want to, you know, really try to shift that to being, to looking at them through that strengths-based lens. And then the second thing I would just say is that, you know, 
you are the perfect parent for your child. I think we can doubt ourselves. We can feel like we're not equipped to deal with the challenges that we may be facing. We may look at other families with jealousy at how easy their lives seem to be with their kids who just kind of like get dressed and go out the door with their lunchbox and everything's good. You know? So, but, but really like you have what it takes and uh, sorry, now see, I've got all kinds of things I'm okay. going to share, but help them. Get us all tooled up. (laughs) The the last thing I would say to this is that these kids demand a lot from us, right? They demand that we show up for them. And that can feel so hard. And it is such a gift because Mm -hmm. parents of neurotypical kids, their kids don't demand the same from us, from them. Right. And they may not be forced to develop the kind of connected relationship that we, if we really lean into who our kids are, have available to us. Right. And that is an incredible gift. I mean, like I said, I've got this like 16 year old kid who like likes to hang out with me. Like who does that? Not too many, not too many. (laughs) But we, we have, I've had to, he's demanded so much from me. I've responded. I've been present. I show up for him. I've learned so much about myself, but also we over the years have fostered a really incredible relationship. And that to me is what this is all about, right? That's what parenting and family is all about. Absolutely. That's so powerful. And you've accomplished one of the greatest gifts and that's friendship and relationship all mixed in there with amazing parenting. Debbie, it is an honor having you here. It was an honor talking with you. Um, Tell us, where can we find you? Well, first of all, thank you so much for this conversation. This has been so interesting for me and I don't often get to talk about the early years with my kiddo and I I appreciate that and, and just having this conversation with you and the work that you do in the world. So, and where people can find me is uh, tiltparenting.com is kind of my home for everything. So you can find all my podcasts. You can check out a sample, a free chapter from my book if you want to see what that's about. Um, I'm on social media. I'm, I Instagram inconsistently at Tilt Parenting. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Twitter. And I have a great Facebook community actually called Tilt Together. And that is a group and it's mostly run by the community. So it's a place for parents to find each other and get resources. And I do Facebook lives in there from time to time. Very nice. Debbie, until the next time, this cannot be your last time coming and hanging out with us. There are a million things that we can talk about. One day we're just going to talk insurance <laughs> and yeah. we'll have like darts and we can like chuck darts <laughs> every time we give a point. Yeah, sounds good. I love that. (laughs) All right, world changers. That's all we have for today. Until the next time, take care.